You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here in the house at Conservative Review on Tuesday afternoon, the 2nd of April. But you know what? When it comes to Republican politics, as all of you know, it is still April Fool's Day because it's always April Fool's Day. We talk a lot about the need for independence, independence of thought in terms of just not being taken in by groupthink, even even just on an intellectual point, independent from moneyed interest. You know, money makes the world go around and most people in politics suddenly start pushing things because there's money there. And everyone's got to earn a living. Everyone's got to earn a living. Now, if you're on the left, there's endless free money where you could just earn a decent living shooting for the moon, agitating, doing stuff in law, policy, politics, elections, moving the goalposts inexorably to the left into cultural, fiscal Marxism, and you have nothing to worry about. You don't have to toe a certain line. You have money given to you specifically for the purpose of putting your foot on that gas pedal, taking this country into the gutter all the way to the left as far as you can. The problem on the right is you don't have money to you know, step on the gas pedal, to fully do everything you can to restore our traditional values, constitutional separation of powers, proper freedom in healthcare, education, truly having a free market of favoritism for nobody, but everyone has equal opportunity, sovereignty, security, civil society, all this stuff is abstract. There's no money behind it. So the best you can do is try to find money to have a narrow focus built around a talking point where you can get money for it. And certainly this was on display last night. Extremely, extremely sad. I I, I refused to watch it because I knew it would just raise my blood pressure to unhealthy levels. But, you know, there you saw the president celebrating Jared Kushner, the passage of the jailbreak bill, which is an anathema to everything Trump ran against. And there he was just basking in the glow of something that you know, you know he doesn't believe in. But nobody, there's nobody around who will call that out. Some of us thought, all right, at least we lost that bad battle, but it's over. Okay, they got what they wanted, that's it. A lot of people who deep down knew this was wrong, but were too scared to fight it. That's what they told me, just so you know. That's what I, I would, was told last year. Look, it's not as fundamental as they wanted. I know you don't like it, but they really wanted much more, and this is it. And I was like, no. If they see how easy it is to get this with no opposition, and Jared Kushner is the conduit for doing it, 
who's the president's personal son-in-law, there's no end to it. You're going to have the second step act. And of course, the president specifically called out by name the second step act. Banning the box legislation. Now, obviously, they'll start out with federal employees only. So that's great. We're going to have a lot lot more uh, people running public policy with a criminal record. But worse than that, you can't even disclose it. Do you understand legally, based on what the courts are doing with everything, if you codify that, do you understand what the EEOC is going to do along with the courts? Obviously, they often work to bring lawsuits in the courts. They're already codifying transgenderism, any you know fav- uh, favored behavior as a protected class as it relates to employment, so-called discrimination. They're going to say this is stigma on people with a criminal record. They will impose it on the private sector. And again, it's the carrot and stick. They talk directly. The president himself said this of encouraging the private sector to do this. Nothing more than common core for criminal law, but it extends to employment as well. I don't know. You, you tell me what you think. To me, watching such a radical idea become fully operational among any conservative with money and the president himself who spent his whole life opposing this including intermittently he still contradicts it and there's not a modicum of opposition to it I'm not sure what we do here I mean, if you think about it, this is a president that ran on law and order. I mean, he said it so many times on the law and order candidate. And yet, we have the biggest lawlessness on immigration, biggest open border, the biggest violation of the Immigration Nationality Act, more so than under Obama. And we have more proposals actually being enacted to get weak on crime and weak on the very drug trafficking crisis, which ironically is engendered by the very open border. So that's the mix of the two under this man's presidency. Now, the tragedy, as many of you know, who might be sick of me saying this constantly, is that the president himself, I think if you're smart enough to read between the lines and you could even listen to him directly, You know what he really believes on this stuff. But ultimately, the administration kind of gets to him. The swamp gets to him. His own son is the swamp. Own son-in-law. And therefore, what happens? Then that becomes officially Trump policy, and then officially everyone stands down. When obviously, certainly as conservatives, we need an independent movement, no matter how much you love Trump, no matter how much you would love Reagan or anyone, to be able to hold down the right flank in the fort because no one else is, and you got to push him in the right direction. But what's tragic is Trump doesn't really even want this. He's a very complicated person. He loves the accolades when he for doing liberal policy. He loves the win, so to speak. I, I, I signed a bill 
But he also opposes it, too. Let's go back to where we know this is true. Nobody could disagree with me on this point that the president really wants to get out of Syria and Afghanistan. That is obvious. The administration is continuing it. So if you're in the conservative movement and you're instead of, you know, fighting for it, you excuse it under the notion of, hey, I don't I don't want to criticize the president. The tragic irony is you're 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 hurting him because without a vocal movement to buttress what he really wants to do, the unanimity of opinion among the swamp is going to get to him and he's going to feel like he has no hand to play to fight them. Look, the Department of Homeland Security announced it is raising the 2019 H2B cap by 30,000 to a record 96,000, higher than even under Obama. These are low-skilled workers. So you can't hide behind the all high-skilled. These are people, the social problems, the criminal problems, the drug trafficking. This is why, I mean, those of you who live in these areas, I get a lot of emails from you. You know this. The Great Plains, the Upper Midwest, because the agricultural interests you are now having, cultural, social, and criminal problems that you never had in these areas. Not all the people are like that. Some will work hard in the fields, earn their paycheck, go home at night, and not cause trouble. But way too many of them do. Because America is more than a spreadsheet. It's more than just, hey... I need five, you know, five cents cheaper for lettuce head. It is a civilization, it is a society. It's got to work. And remember, any of them that has a kid, they're here to stay. And you know the sick irony. Why do these companies want them? Precisely so they can pay them nothing. But precisely because they pay them nothing, guess what? They need to be on welfare. As soon as they have an American-born kid, that's it. So who is out there trying to force the president's hand on some of what's going on on, on the good the immigration areas where he's good on, which there is some good news percolating. But you know how Trump works. There's these trial balloons with the border. If the conservative movement floods the zone and backs the president – He'll push on it. If we back off and all he gets is criticism, he'll back off. So that's how we get left with an open border, no shutdown of the border, which doesn't mean commerce. It means immigration requests. Properly interpreting asylum law. Obviously, birthright citizenship. No, what we get instead is not that. We get record open borders. And we get record low-skilled visas. It's funny. That's one thing that won't be taken to court. (laughs) Well, one executive action that won't be taken to court. Well, why is it whenever there's a liberal outcome, somehow nobody cares? You know what's interesting? interesting? Just yesterday, the D.C. Circuit Court you know, the D.C. appellate court, federal court, once again swatted down 
the gun rights groups who wanted to get relief from Trump's bump stock ban, retroactive bump stock ban. And Judge Karen Henderson, if you know she's good on immigration, she dissented, but it was it was a two-to-one opinion. The only things that Trump will be able to enact are the things he does executively that either are truly outside of his statutory authority and his constitutional authority or that have a liberal policy outcome to them or both. And I just feel like I'm Jeremiah in the ruins of the temple yelling out like, hey, what happened? Did we just have like a nuclear explosion? Is there anyone around here? Does anyone see what I see? Everyone in this movement is in a good mood. They think we're winning. Uh, tell me, what are we winning? I, I just don't get it. I didn't even get to the to the debt. Healthcare, debt, border, foreign wars. I mean, st- you know, don't don't take it personally. Stop with the excuses. Just at least first recognize what is happening. You could swear up and down it's not Trump's fault, and that's fine. And certainly some of it isn't his fault. There's no question. But it is what it is. Trump certainly didn't start judicial supremacy. It just got to a critical point under his presidency, and he's just not doing anything to push back against it. So... Look, just don't don't deny it. Don't tell me that we're winning. But this is what happens when you don't have an independent voice. Because it's either I need clicks for my website or my money cannot be allowed to go towards this view or I'm too scared to hold this view anymore culturally or I'm too scared because, Daniel, if I do that, I'm persona non grata in the, in the White House. And those are all true things. But then where does that leave us? How are we going to even slow any of the bad stuff, much less affirmatively win good policies? Again, I get it. I understand. I'm not dumb. I'm not naive in this business. I know politics is inherent in politics. Okay, Soap opera is always going to be there. But there's got to be some end to it. And we do the president no favors by allowing the swamp to just adopt Trump as, as their own and Trump to therefore back um, back the swamp. That's my problem here. You know, you, you look at um, what the president said in the Rose Garden. On uh, February 15th, if you remember, that was the day, the Friday, that the president surrendered on the budget bill. Well, no, I mean, that was that was a week before, I think, but he um, that was when he announced the emergency at our border. Okay, he announced the emergency at the border, and that's what everyone remembers it for. That's when he announced he's reprogramming several billion dollars from DOD funding to be used to construct border barriers. Okay. 
so one of the points he made as he was trying to make his case is that we got drugs flowing in and that's why we need a border wall. What a lot of people forget is the case that he made based on that and how that ties into crime and drug you know incarceration for drugs and his entire philosophy. Very very important. Very important. So, you know, he said, obviously he said, if you're going to have drugs pouring across the border, if you're going to have human traffickers pouring across the border in areas where we have no protection, areas where we don't have a barrier, then it's very hard to make America great again. Okay, well, that there's nothing new. But then he went on to say how we have to get rid of drugs and gangs. Okay, where does that come from? Where do drugs and gangs come from? The president identified it. It's all, it's the border. It's the cartels. The gang's working for the cartels. So he knows what I know. He says what I say. Okay? That was very, I mean, it was was perfect. Perfect. But he took it a step further and he said, actually, you know, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. Come to think of it. Come to think of it. I'm totally wrong here. It was a week before. It was it was that week before. I, I it was two separate addresses. I just wanted to be accurate for for accuracy's sake. It was the week before in February, and you remember what he said. Enough of these blue ribbon commissions. We need to lock them up more. And he said, China. They give them the death penalty. You want to stop drugs? That will stop it. And then last night he celebrates. This bill, when I could tell you every single law enforcement person I work with, from from local to sheriff to um, DA to ICE, they will tell you the entirety of the problem is a criminal alien problem. It's fundamentally an external problem. All of the major busts they deal with revolve around the border and the Mexican cartels. They're all high-level people. Most of them are either doing other bad things to the cartels or the transnational gang members that are often picked up on murder. These are the people. 20, 25 years ago, it was more almost all Americans. This is what it is now. So by definition, when you're giving leniency, it's to these people. The whole thing is a lie, and he knows it. He knows it. But let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Here is one thing I want you to remember from today. See, last night at the gala, the big gala dinner, I mean, celebrating the Koch brothers and the, and the Soroses, you understand that was read from a teleprompter. That was President Jared Kushner speaking. 
What Trump said at the Rose Garden was off the cuff from his heart. That is President Trump. So all of you are like, hey, Daniel, you're not with the president. Again, obviously, the idea is to be with the right side of policy, no matter what. But if that is what floats your boat, no, you're with Kushner. I'm with Trump. But again, Trump is a very complicated person. I think all of you understand him by now, the way he rolls, how, you know, is often just literally, you know, mutual exclusive, mutually exclusive, the different things he does. So you leave him to his own devices and you leave the swamp to its own devices. This is what's going to happen. And this is what I fear for the next six years. I know it's depressing. I know some of you might want to turn this off, but what I'm trying to get my wrap my arms around is what, what do we do about this? This is the number one issue we need to care about. What do we do to make progress on a modicum of what we all understood conservatism to be in any issue? Again, no way anything will ever pass Congress of substance. We proved that. There's no way you could do it in a budget bill because it will cause a government shutdown. We can't have government shutdown. Anything the president does executively, including simply just countermanding what Obama invented out of whole cloth, a court will knock down. Maybe one out of 15 eventually will get relief from the Supreme Court. That's it. But it's worse than that. It's Trump is going to be captured by the swamp to downright push new bad legislation that does have the votes to pass or new bad executive policy that will not be taken to the courts. And that will be enacted. And unlike when a Democrat is president, or even if maybe a George W. Bush type of Republican, especially in the second term as president, where you're going to get blowback from conservative media, in this case, you will not. You will not at all. That is the important thing to remember here. So anyway, that's that with crime, that part of law and order. Now, what about immigration? So the the good news is, you know, the president is recognizing that the border wall (laughs) – is not where we're at now. We're long past that stage. I mean, that that's something that's later. As we always say, that's the inoculation for the future after we stop the hemorrhaging. Um, he understands some policy needs to be changed. Floating a lot of ideas in immigrations are um, different things going on. And we're going to discuss with Jessica Vaughn in a couple of moments if I can get her on, which I think I can. Uh, Senate for Immigration Studies, expert in immigration enforcement, nobody like her. Talk about someone who doesn't bend with the wind, um, stays on message, stays on her job. She is awesome. She is great. We're going to have her on, but I just want to just preface this by saying our immigration laws are not broken as it relates to our border and illegal immigration. People need to understand there's this thought out there that anyone who wants could just come to our border, declare asylum, they have to be let in, and they therefore they have to be released, and they get a work permit, and there's nothing we can do. 
And everyone's like, why would we have such stupid laws? And that's what the president says. The laws don't say that. You read Section 1225 of the INA, which deals with credible fear claims. It's written with the full common sense of genuine people coming in to take care of them and nobody else. And even then, it makes it leaves the discretion fully in the hands of the agencies to block out any fraud and to ensure that the American people are on the hook for this at nowhere in the process. It's simply not true. First of all, first of all, it's important to remember before we go any further. It it is a criminal offense to come to our border without proper documentation. 8 USC 1325A, it's a class B misdemeanor. Could maybe we could tighten it, but I just want to make very clear that is a problem. Okay, people seem to think no, you didn't break any laws. That that, that that that's not true. Famous exchange. Some of you might have seen this last year, last July. Senator Mazi Harono, the satanic woman from uh, Hawaii, asked uh, at an oversight hearing this guy um, Matthew Albans. He's the whatever executive associate director of ICE. She said, wait, the the illegals, you know, the, the aliens who have broken a law only is deemed by the president by a zero tolerance policy. So Albans was uh, no man. They're they're there for violation of Title VIII, 8 USC 1325. Um, that's a legal entry with his, which is both a criminal and civil violation. She's like, my understanding is that under zero tolerance, there are no longer civil proceedings, but were in fact criminal proceedings. Uh, Mr. Albans says um, they're both. There were criminal proceedings when the Border Patrol prosecuted them, but at the conclusion of that process, once the individual came into the ICE custody, they'd go through administrative proceedings. I'm confused, said Senator Hirono. Right? Everyone knows you are breaking a law, and we could prosecute you for that, and then it's certainly much stiffer if you re-enter after being deported. But then there's the civil case, which is just deportation right we're not doing anything to you we're not holding you we just want to get rid of you that's sovereignty so there's no due process for that okay that, that that's what what's very simple now i was like well well what, what about what about asylum i thought um you know daniel isn't there uh isn't there asylum now what people need to understand about that is that there's something very simple here. All you're entitled to is, so first off, if you come here, you're you're an illegal alien. You are placed into deportation orders, into deportation, expedited deportation. And in 1996, Congress tightened it up. If you want, you could say, you could apply for discretionary relief from the deportation you see what I'm saying? It's not like right away you're, I'm an asylum. No, no, you're an illegal alien. You're going to be deported. Oh, you want to assert, you want discretionary relief, meaning the attorney general as originally written in statute, now it's DHS secretary, discretionary relief. That is a discretionary thing we don't have to issue to you. Well, but don't you ha- don't they have to be heard? Don't you have to give the, put them in front of an asylum adjudicator? Well, yeah, you could, any immigration official could say, hey, what's your story? They interview you. And 
they say, you know, I have a credible fear. The, the determination of whether that's legit or not is solely in the hands of the administration. They could say, no, you're not, and then you're placed into deportation proceedings. Okay? So, and and then it says, section 235, B1, B1 of the INA, they're placed in an expedited deportation, quote, without further hearing or review. Now, it is complicated because they could ask for an appeal to the, to EOR, that's the DOJ's adjudicative body. And they could get that appeal. But again, the alien, quote, shall be detained pending a final determination of credible fear, fear of persecution and if found not to have such fear until removed. <clears throat> that is clear. At every process, the point was, so they, they they weren't stupid. They understood when we were writing that we don't want people on the hook because they'll just disappear. You have to detain them. And then in order that they don't drag out forever, the attorney general shall provide by regulation upon the alien's request for prompt review by an immigration judge of a determination under subclause one that the alien does not have a credible fear of persecution. Such reviews shall include an opportunity for the alien to be heard and questioned by the immigration judge, either in person or by telephonic or video connection. Review shall be concluded as expeditiously as possible to the maximum extent practicable within 24 hours, but in no case later than seven days after the date and determination under subclause. Everyone, including asylum requests, are supposed to be turned down in this situation for sure. And if they appeal, they have really within 24 hours, no later than seven days, and they must, shall be detained. So catch and release is illegal. And, you know, endless appeals is illegal. Dragging it out is illegal. That is the law. They're playing all these games of creating phony settlements in courts that aren't even court orders, much less laws. Plus the lowest common denominator of each court ruling at every stage of the process, transmogrified, multiplied by the greatest common factor for the illegal. And they have a law that's antithetical to what every other part of the INA says. You cannot write a statute to preclude what they've done to us. Because we, we did this in 96 to, to, to do this. We have to understand what's going on here. We can't play their cat and mouse game. At some point, you have to assert your the real statutes. Well, and once they're that, well, you really can only hold it for 20 days, and now there's millions of them, and then really, you have to take their claims and have to agree to them and, oh, but now there's kids, so uh, you got to let them go. Well, it doesn't say a kid exception in statute, but that was made up of whole cloth. And then, well, now you must not detain them. How do you bastardize one court opinion forum shopped after another, one settlement after another to the point that you literally come out 180 degrees the opposite of what statute actually says? That's what nobody is asking. Our laws aren't broken. And again, 
to the extent they're broken, it was under the Obama administration where you could say, if you read the INA, there's enough discretion there in both directions that if you're unscrupulous in caring for American sovereignty and you want to make the exceptions of discretionary relief in um, exigent circumstances, urgent, dire circumstances, they are designed for individual, individual aliens in dire circumstances – So, um, yeah, you know, and you want to just make that the rule rather than the exception. That was the problem. You need to, like, take that discretion away in that direction. But that you would have discretion to enforce the base law and not offer these other things. Like, for example, you must detain them. But there's one area that says, like, if you feel there's a medical condition or something, that then you could parole them. But what the courts have done is they've mandated release. That the, There's no laws in the world that compelled this outcome. That's what we need to understand. Now, speaking of immigration law, there is nobody around that I know who understands the laws as written and its consequences in terms of enforcing our sovereignty both at the border and in the interior than Jessica Vaughn, frequent guest to this show. Jessica, as you well know, has long time been a director for policy studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. Our friends over there put out terrific uh, information. Um, Jessica never gets sidetracked, never gets distracted. It doesn't matter what the politics are, the administration, the party, always focusing on what works to maintain our sovereignty. And I figured we would have her input on whether there is some good news. Am I just being the Grim Reaper? Is there some good morsels to hang on to? Hey, Jessica, great to have you back on the show again. Glad to be with you. All right, you got to brighten up our spirits. there are some things to look forward to, but, you know, until this influx stops, we really can't relax. No, we can't. I mean, because it's not just a matter of, oh, okay, we didn't gain territory. We didn't, you know, fix chain migration, diversity, visa lottery, birthright citizenship, things we wanted to do. But, you know, they've been there for a long time. We've gone backwards. We've never had this degree of flow. Um, Just before we get to some of the ideas that the administration is um, floating with trial balloons, am I getting this correct that I noticed this independently, and I saw your colleague, Art Arthur at CIS, point this out, that if you look at the asylum numbers, what's actually going into the system, it's not growing that much more, yet we have the biggest flow at our border we've ever had. So is it true that we're not even embarking on the asylum process, which requires detention and pretty much adjudication within a week? We're just straight up releasing them without anything? Well, we do have some questions about how these arrivals are being processed. And it may not be done the same way at every location along the border or the same way with every type of case, because it's not just Central American families and unaccompanied minors and single Mexican men. There are people coming from all over the world um, trying the same thing. And so, and and different uh, parts of our border enforcement um, um, system have different capacities. But what what we're seeing is that the numbers 
of cases in court does not seem to match the number of new arrivals. And it could be for a lot of different reasons. But we suspect that at the moment, the reason is that people are not even being fully processed the way they were before this phase of the crisis started in the last few months, you know, with a formal issuance of a notice to appear and, you know, calendaring that case on the immigration docket and, you know, watching it, um, you know, proceed from there. We made, you know, when this crisis first started, um, back then the Border Patrol and ICE were just releasing people on parole and not really counting them. At times they were making sure to process all of them with the uh, you know, essentially charging them with an immigration violation and getting them calendared in a court. For a lot of reasons right now, we think that they are not necessarily doing that, part of which is because they don't stay in the border area. So we have to wait to see where they land to know which immigration course court is going to take their case. But I think a lot of it is that these individuals, to be frank, don't even pursue their asylum claim once we release them. They're not interested in a court date. They're just interested in finding out a date to show up for their job. That's, you know, so they're, they don't, they don't even get the ball rolling. They refuse legal counsel. They don't care. They just want to be here and join their friends and family who've come before. They want to stay under the radar. They don't want to, you know, in an ankle bracelet or be told to, you know, appear in court on a certain date. They're lost in the system. So we think that, the that you know, it, it, the problem is not just the clogging of our asylum system, that, like, these cases just aren't even being put on the docket. So that's why they're not showing up in the statistics. But this is the scary thing is nobody really knows, or at least no one <laughs> in the public knows. <laughs> I think DHS knows, and I think DOJ knows. But, um, but, you know, that's a real problem if these people truly disappear, and they're not even, you know, there's not even an attempt to monitor where they are. That means that the Trump administration and certain agencies have just basically put up a white flag and surrendered. White flag and surrendered, because that's what concerned me, that at least with this crazy process, which as I explained in the first half an hour of the show, it's against statute. Statute was designed straight up that the American people should never be on the hook. You're always deportable, expedited deportation. It's just you have a discretionary form of relief you could ask for, and we could deny it, and the determination is left to us. And in fact, the parameters are clear in statute that would deny 100% of these people asylum. It should be done right away. They have one appeal that should take about a week, and would even hit the florists, you know, would, would even, you know, uh, right. be, be with under the florists, a 20 day limit. And that's itself is made up. And instead, what we are told is the outcome that we're compelled is 180 degrees diametrical from statute. So my concern is, I'm curious if you agree. And I, you know, I know even some of our colleagues are, you know, saying different things that in my personal opinion, I think are a little bit off message it's not only not just about the border wall anymore. It's not even about Congress fixing the loopholes. Because the reality is, as you said, pigs will fly until they do it. They're not going to do it. And the reality is, we don't need to do it. What What's happening is not the law, and we fixed the law one time to prevent this anyway. So if we agree that this needs to be the result, then I'm not sure what we can do. Well, 
I do think that there are things that we can do to stop, at least to to put a dent in it. Um, I think it will take time and it takes guts. But, um, you know, what I'm seeing is a little bit of pressure here and there in certain parts of it and and more um, steps to manage this crisis and the flow of people not to stop it. And, and that's a problem, too. We don't, you know, we shouldn't be trying to manage it and make it better for the people experiencing it. You know, the migrants, we should be making it uncomfortable so that they are not interested in doing this. Anymore. Sure, sure. And, and and to quote, you know, to that point that I think is, is very true that you put out. And I think, uh, you know, we, we spoke about this last time that in previous eras, you know, back when we actually believed in our sovereignty, we certainly broke this up before it ever became a crisis level. So what I put out today was before it, in in 1989, when Nicaraguans were coming, they were coming on and off for a decade and, and, and actually legitimately, um, it started out as asylum, uh, 87% at some point were actually approved of asylum. They were wealthier people fleeing the Sandinistas who were going to take uh, revenge against the ruling family that was kicked out. So you had Hurricane Joanne in 1988. So that kind of spawned more just economic migrants. And it reached over a period of um, nine months or so, 18,000 people going into 1989. And they did tent cities, rocket docket, you know, whatever they said was final, that's it got them out. Um, At the time, the INS commissioner, Alan Nelson, said, we intend to send a strong signal to those people who have the mistaken idea that by merely filing a frivolous asylum claim, they may stay in the United States. This willful manipulation of America's generosity must and will stop. And indeed, a month later, it kind of did. What has changed? Surprise. (laughs) Well, from one thing that has changed is the willingness of the executive branch to do that. Another thing that has changed is the um, willingness of federal judges to allow lawsuits that, frankly, are outside the court's jurisdiction, yep. you know, for many reasons, as you well know. Um, and I, I just and I think. Also, the whole open borders industry is just a lot more sophisticated and a lot more widespread within the mainstream media and the advocacy groups and members, you know, frankly, members of the political class that this whole thing is pursued is presented as, you know, a big humanitarian crisis, not what it is, which is basically economic opportunism. And, you know, we saw the same thing with the Cubans, too. There was a time when there were many, many people, and there still are people from Cuba who deserve asylum, who are being persecuted by uh, uh, an awful regime. But that's not all of the people who are coming here. But imagine that 18,000 people, they got tough because 18, we're going to have 18,000 people probably arrive this week. Oh, yeah. And there are people in denial that this is a crisis. But, you know, there's something I, I think your your new article um, on on this uh, episode, the Nick Rogan episode, is really worth reconsidering. 
And the, and at the end, you say something like, well, nothing's changed in asylum law since then. But actually, something has changed uh, in the mid-1990s because our asylum system was being abused by people flying in from the Middle East and flushing their passports down the toilet and then going walking out of JFK Airport, something which, by the way, was documented on 60 Minutes of all media outlets, prompted Congress and the Clinton administration to revamp the asylum system to say that we, we should be detaining everyone who asks for asylum until their claim is resolved. And that, and was, the, that was the law until the Obama administration, one of their first acts was to issue an executive order. Actually, it wasn't even an executive order. It was a memorandum from the director of ICE, which isn't even the agency that decides asylum claims. But they issued an, uh, a memo saying that people with asylum claims should be released and not held. So that was part of what started this crisis is once people realize that you get here, say the magic word asylum and and the you know federal government's going to let you go. Well, you know, that's that's what started this increase that really took off when then um, certain judges Stepped yep. in and started saying things like, you can't detain children, even if they're with their parents, you can't detain them. And you've got to finish this thing within 20 days. All these other folks, or excuse me, sticks that they stuck in the spokes of the asylum system, you know, were piled on top of that. Um, but, you know, we still can detain everyone. Uh, it, and I think that the administration should be pushing back more on this bizarre court ruling that shouldn't apply to a lot of these cases. Um, And so I think there is more they could do. They were supposed to issue regulations overturning this um, limitation on detention of kids. Yes. Whatever happened. So they promulgated it September 7th of last year. There's a 45 day comment period. But I, I don't I see neither kind of implementation nor a lawsuit. They were gearing up for a lawsuit, but there is no injunction. So w- whatever happened, it kind of died. That's a really good question. I I, 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 I mean for our audience, I'm I'm just you know speaking out loud here. I I don't know. I will try to put in a request, and frankly, you know, and and this is something I wanted to get to that just the decentralization and basket case of immigration. It used to be under the INS lock, stock, and barrel. That was much better. Now, I mean, each one pushes you to another agency just from a press angle, certainly from a policy angle. But I mean, Jessica, it says in 235, Section 235 of the INA, that's credible fear. It's that, you know, during this period, quote, it shall, shall be detained pending a final determination of credible fear of persecution and if not to have such a fear until removed and then the process very clearly that it can't drag out you know that um, such review shall include an opportunity for the alien to be heard yada yada but it shall be concluded as expeditiously as possible to the maximum extent practicable within 24 hours but in no case later than seven days so law says number one if it's not an individualized persecution uh, based on um, you know, political belief, religion, ethnicity, uh, you know, social group, done. Then you're not, you're, you're denied. That's it. That That is the law. You have to do that. That is what our laws say. We're not doing it. Then it says, okay, well, okay, but, you know, don't they get an appeal? Yeah, but then 
you have to detain them. And then it says you have to complete right. by seven days. How could they use so many things against us to come out with 180 degrees the opposite result? I'm reading this section of law, and I don't see a problem with the law. There is no problem with the law. The law it w- it would work if we used it. But um, there, it's been decided that, you know, if, if you talk to immigration judges, oh, well, they all have to have, uh, we think they should have counsel. They have, they have the right to counsel, not taxpayer-provided counsel. So we have to give them a chance to uh, have a lawyer. So it's like an automatic 60-day continuance. Um, and uh, we have to give them a chance to get their application together um, and, you know, tell their story. And uh, by that point, we probably have to give them a work permit so that they can support themselves. And then, you know, if if they don't succeed with their first hearing, then we have, you know, they can appeal and you know, by this point, you know, this is if they've even showed up for any of this. The other thing is we're not really we're, we're not uh, going after those who just don't even bother faking the asylum application. They just disappear. And, and that is a felony a failure to appear. And we do nothing about that either. So the it's the whole system is a, a charade, a joke. And, and that's what bothers me. Nobody, including the administration, is asserting that. Meaning at some point, if you write a law that this is discretionary, temporary, must be detained, can't be more than a week, out of here. If it's not that narrow, very, very narrow asylum, even if you're fleeing general violence, you know, which, of course, violence has gone down there. But had and that somehow turns into a Frankenstein of... No, mandatory um, endless appeals to Article Three courts for years, um, and you're released. And, and, I, I mean, at some point, yeah, someone's got to get up there. Doing. Yeah, yeah, someone's got to get yeah. there uh, up there and assert that there. You cannot write a law to preclude that if we are going to allow that to to happen. And instead, we start the starting point is from the bastardization of the law, from the ridiculous random court opinions times 10 rather than no this is what statute says you know here's the issue um we're running i I don't want to take too much of your time what i want to get from you is could you explain to our audience this took me by surprise a little bit brandon judd the head of the border patrol union floated this idea in a washington times um op-ed i'm gonna write about tomorrow uh basically basically saying what we're saying you know follow the law um, we're talking about 10 cities just practically to, to hold them so you don't have that issue, just the practicality of releasing them, but legally, certainly, you can and must hold them. But he puts um, puts a point on it that I think really, it, it sounds a little bit in the weeds to people, but he says, have the Border Patrol agents be the ones conducting the initial credible fear, fear interviews why do you think that's kind of the glue that's gonna that would help put this lawful process in motion and end the lawlessness? Well, I think this would really help and is the kind of bold, creative thinking that we need right now to deal with this. If uh, we were to have the Border Patrol be the entity, the agents, the people, the government officials who do this initial screening of the migrants, then 
it would make a big difference. Right now, more than 90% of the asylum seekers who say they fear return, I should, I should say, you know, the so-called asylum seekers, the people who just show up and say, I, I fear return, wait to see an asylum officer that works for USCIS. And those asylum officers are not near the border. They're stationed in the nearest cities, which can be far from the border. And so it takes a while before they actually get that screening. If the Border Patrol did it, it would just accelerate the processing of these cases a lot. And it would, if this screening were done immediately, then there's no opportunity for um, the new arrivals to hear from others what kind of stories are working or that I'm supposed to, they're supposed to claim asylum. You know, don't just, um, you know, let them turn you around right away. But the, the key is a couple things. The Border Patrol is right on the front lines of this crisis. They know exactly what's going on. They're seeing the masses of people. They know what the migrants are saying about why they're coming, which is to join friends or family or to seek work or just to get a better life or because they heard that they could or and, and paid a smuggler to do it. They are not at all insulated from this crisis They know why it's happening, that it's our policies that are setting this off. And so they're just in a better position to evaluate whether this is a legitimate claim or a bogus one just to game our system. Whereas the asylum officers sit in offices far from the border in their cubbies, you know, reading the reports written by Amnesty International and other human rights groups about how horrible things are in these other countries. And so they don't have a realistic view of what's going on. So we need the Border Patrol to do that. And secondly, our sources um, are telling us from within USCIS that there has been an informal order from the career bureaucrats who are entrenched Mm -hmm. in that agency to simply approve all of these initial asylum applications, the credible fear step, as it's called. And to just do it. And that's what the expectation is. And to let these people solve it through the courts or, you know, to just look the other way at what is happening. The Border Patrol agents are not, you know, they don't report to USCIS. They're not subject to pressure. They're, you know, they're not going to be denied um, nice job opportunities because they refuse asylum seekers. Um, They're just, you know, not going to be a target of that sort of, um, you know, deep state resistance that I'm told actually does exist within this agency. And so they're going to do the right thing. They're going to apply the law. And um, that really could help turn people around so that others will see that this the party's over and it's not working the way it did before. So hold the line right at the point of entry, right? I mean, not literally point of entry, it could be between, but right at the line, right at the line. And, and you know, once you let them exactly. in is where you have the problems. The point you're making, I hear, is really two issues. It's one, just logistically, it's all, you know, you get the clock rolling, boom, right away. From there, you're put into proceedings. So therefore, it's either you're out of here or if you want to appeal it, there's under statute seven days, that's it. Um, Right. And there won't be this problem we talked about at the beginning of this segment about what's happening to these people in between apprehension and uh, supposedly a court date. Um, exactly. So, so it's, so it truncates the whole thing again, not artificially to, to what statute designed it to be. 
Uh, I think that is th- that's obvious, but you're also making a political point, and I'm I'm curious if you agree with me on this point. I I, I started thinking about it, and I did a show on this last week, two weeks ago, about the fact that in 1954 we had an operation from the Eisenhower administration where they removed hundreds of thousands of illegals helter-skelter very quickly within really a matter of months. And I've never read anywhere about lawsuits and and challenges. You know, um, they all talk about the logistics of it, but nobody ever talks about any, any legal problems. And, you know, your, your first thought would be, well, yeah, you know, that's the Wild West. That's when we were just a bunch of crazy Neanderthals um, before the enlightened era. But, you know, what I was thinking is that 1954 is two years after 1952. Those are the governing statutes that we abide by to this day. And if anything, in 96, they tightened it up. So I was wondering is, is a big part of this that back then it was the INS. They were all four. Okay. You know, border patrol, detention, deportation, adjudication, for asylum, uh, there was no separate um, EOR, the immigration judges and, and justice department. It was one agency under one department, and they were all together. Is the problem now that you have three agencies in DHS and then the adjudication in EOR and DOJ? So, you know, that's how you could have a deep state within a USCIS or something, and certainly in EOR, even if the law enforcement officers of ICE and, and Border Patrol want to do the right thing. Well, I, I do agree that there is a lack of unity of mission in some ways among these DHS agencies, and and that can be exacerbated by political, um, political appointees, and it, um, as we saw um, was the case when ICE was first formed, um, and it can also be just the, the result of different um, bureaucratic cultures, uh, and, and that can be emboldened sometimes by um, under particular administrations, like, for example, when we saw under the Obama administration, USCIS wouldn't even let ICE agents in a building, in their building, to try to pick up a suspect in a terrorist attack that killed 14 people that had happened like the day before in San Mm. Bernardino. They refused to let them in to try to pick up, you know, someone who was a suspected accomplice in that, uh, who was supposed to show up for a USCIS appointment. They literally shut them out of the building. Um, I don't think we would find that under the Trump administration. The, the, um, the, the, um, The philosophy is for a unity of mission to protect the homeland and to work together to do that. Um, So, you know, a a lot of that can, can be addressed through leadership. I just don't, I I just think it's hard to overcome and not enough time has passed. And I I do think that um, some of these agency leaders could perhaps get away with a little more, um, uh, trimming of dead or resistant wood that exists in the career ranks. I mean, the, it used to be well known that if you were a senior official within a department career, you know, you were you could be moved to do any job in any place at any time. And if you were not um, playing well in the sandbox with the new administration, then then they could remove you to another job, you know, 
counting paper clips off in a you know windowless office somewhere um you know because you were just were not cooperating that there seems to be uh hesitation to do that in some of these agencies right now and i don't know if it's because they feel like they're under so much scrutiny already by the news media and there are so many leaks and things that it'll be portrayed um you know negatively but my gosh they're getting so much negative coverage as it is what difference does it make i'm not sure what they're afraid of but um i i don't know the answer to that i do know that that they need to address this problem. So in that vein, just in the remaining time here, one of, one of the other ideas that seems to be leaked and floated around is this idea of an immigration czar um, that would maybe coordinate all this. Normally, as conservatives, you tend not to like adding more. I wish we would subtract and go back to the old days and have just one entity. But now that you irrevocably have all this stuff, would it help to have an immigration czar? I, I don't think it would help given the current set of people in key jobs. I mean, the DHS <laughs> secretary should be the immigration czar. <laughs> and I realize that there are other agencies involved, but that office, the front office of DHS is supposed to be where the interagency issues get coordinated. Um, but so, you know, that's certainly lacking now. The person in that job, frankly, seems to be in over her head. And so, you know, I think I, I don't think having an immigration czar <laughs> is the answer. It's the, and it's also the job of people within the White House um, to coordinate interagency mm. issues. And so, you know, we there are a number of people in the White House who are involved in immigration policy. Um, so I, I just have a hard time seeing how that would help. <laughs> well, I mean, you're right. Come to think of it, the president's the immigration czar. I mean, constitutionally, <laughs> we, we call it the executive branch, but really it's the president. I mean, that's the, the executive yeah. power is vested in the president. You know, he just obviously is busy and you need to delegate. Um, and he has people in the White House to do that. So that, that's a terrific point. Um, one other thing is uh, just, again, give clarity to people, different things being floated around. So there's talk about shutting down the border. And then, of course, the media responds, oh, you're choking off all commerce and this and that. But when I talked about shutting down the border, and, and I don't know if he got it from me or didn't get it from me. They are talking about some of my proposals. But I was meant something very different. I mean, I understand like as leverage for a 24 hour period here or there, if you want to prove a point, you might shut it down, but that's not what I meant. My, my reading of statute and, and I, I don't understand how if a hundred people got in a room, you could write a statute more emphatically, right? 1182 F. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the U.S. would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate. I mean, <laughs> I, it, every permutation is, is covered in there. So he could easily regulate only points of entry, all the place, my understanding of what he would do or should do, and I can't speak for them, maybe they are talking about shutting down commerce, is you're just saying, we are no longer giving out any, I would say immigrant, immigrant status. Immigrant status at our land border is done for the next six months, and it could be extended. We got to shut this down. 
Um, now, some people say, well, well, Daniel, you can, there's no gate around the, you know, between the points. But so what? We're not, there is no asylum. We're not, we're suspending that. This is a shutoff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, is it more complicated than yeah, that? Or No, you, you also could, I mean, it, it sounds like with the administration's approach is to say, um, you know, like, Officially, we need all of these inspectors who work at the legal ports of entry to go help out the Border Patrol because they're so overwhelmed. Therefore, we can't staff 24 lanes today at San Isidro. We're only going to staff five, and that's going to make the lines really long, and people are going to complain to their congressmen, and then Congress will act. <laughs> it's not going to work like that. Um, I hope, you know, I, I think you could do it a little more strategically to put pressure on Mexico to start again trying to intercept some of this flow north long before it gets anywhere near the border. And that maybe is working from what, you know, there have been some reports that Mexico is starting to intercept some of these busloads now and arrest some of the smugglers and send the migrants back. That And they're going to keep offering people asylum, but not everyone. So, you know, that implies that these people who are trying to get to the U.S. border will be illegal aliens in Mexico, and Mexico reserves the right to arrest them. (laughs) But um, I think that was a result, at least it's timed coincidentally right after Trump started talking about shutting down the border. You know, I mean, I think you could shut down like the pedestrian lanes and the vehicle lanes to a trickle. And that would send a signal. And that's not a bad thing to do. It's using leverage that we have. But I, I like your idea, too. I think that might be more targeted. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like that as a diplomatic um, jostling against Mexico. But in terms of just actuality, I'm just saying it is literally an override. It's been there since 1891. This form is 1952, but it's basically been there since 1891. Um, There's a whole philosophy behind it. It, it, Clarence Thomas says there are no justiciable limitations. So that means if someone someone comes in, we're closed for business. All things equal, we allow you to ask for asylum. These are certainly not all things equal, and everyone could agree to that, um, given the situation. And therefore, we bring you back. Why are we such weak losers that we have to ask Mexico to bust them back, which I'm all for? We could do – no, you you're, you cannot enter. You cannot enter our country. I mean that's how I read the statute, and if it's not as strong as that, I don't know how you would write it like that. <laughs> right. and, and I think it just bothers me. I just think the case has not been made more forceful. Um, okay, I know we're out of time. I promised the last question here because I forgot to ask you this before. A little different note. H2B visas. DHS announced 30,000 in, uh, increase of 30,000 H2B visas. Um, it's up to what, like 90,000, a higher level than under Obama. What's going on here? What's going on is the uh, employers who like this uh, unskilled so-called temporary workers program want more and they have there are people within the White House and other places in the administration, especially DHS front office, who are sympathetic to them 
and want to be able to provide it. And there are members of Congress who want the number increased but don't want to be seen voting for it, um, who have kind of all agreed that what's going to happen is Congress is going to say, oh, DHS, we give you the authority to decide what the number will be. And DHS will say, oh, twist my arm. I guess I should increase it. (laughs) And uh, business gets its workers, its cheap workers. And, um, you know, Americans are denied these opportunities. It's as simple as that. This is a special interest cheap labor program that has been expanded by the Trump administration, despite the higher America um, mantra of the administration. But they never realized how great the economy would be. And it's booming so fast. They just need people. Well, yeah, I think that the president himself is susceptible to these stories that have been planted by all of these employers that, you know, that there will be, you know, all the economic growth brought about by President Trump will be stunted if he does not uh, give us some more workers. Never mind the fact that Americans are coming on, you know, coming back into the labor force to fill these jobs. You know, before this increase happened, we were putting people back to work who had dropped out of the labor market. You know, as soon as you allow more guest workers, those are going to be opportunities denied to all of these people who were, for whatever reason, I don't know, decided to take disability or are being released, um, you know, under criminal, you know, the, the um, you know, sentencing changes or, um, you know, for whatever reason have not been in the labor market now have the opportunity and they're about to sh- them out again. But isn't it true that aside from the labor issue, there's also something to be said when you're bringing in people carte blanche and almost like a slave labor mentality. Um, and, you know, they cluster together to work. There's no kind of family structure usually. Don't you often have social slash criminal problems in these places where they're pretty peaceful, upper Midwest, Great Plains, and then now suddenly... They're experiencing drug trafficking. They got gangs. I, what do you know about this? Isn't there this mantra of we love them during the day, but not at night? Yeah, that's um, a gang investigator said that to me one time in a um, part of rural Virginia. Everybody loves these people during the day because they work so hard, but it's at night when they cause me all the problems. And I see that over and over again with, you know, employers have. Gosh, no idea that all, what all those tattoos meant on this really hardworking <laughs> auto mechanic. <laughs> um, you know, they, they so and so. You know, Squirmy was such a you know Squirmy the MS13 member was such a great worker during the day. <laughs> I didn't realize he was hacking off people's hands at night. Um, it, people too often are willing to look the other way at um, the side effects of illegal immigration. Um, There was a case in Vermont that was a perfect example of a farm that put up all these illegal workers and they couldn't get driver's licenses at the time in Vermont. So a state employee and another, uh, someone who worked for one of the migrant justice organizations um, basically set up a prostitution ring and would, uh, and um, drug trafficking ring to uh, entertain all these men who couldn't leave the farm um, because they had no way to get anywhere because it was rural and they didn't have driver's licenses. So, you know, you break one law, it's not so hard to break the next few laws. Um, it was really a scandal. But, um, yeah, it's, again, one of the side effects of looking the other way at 
illegal employment. Yep. No, and then that certainly mixes in with the H-2Bs. I mean, it's kind of the same demographic often, and, you know, you right, have... Right, it's, it is the same de- demographic. It's um, H-2B is unskilled, temporary wor- so-called temporary workers, even though, you know, they get to stay almost the whole year, go home for a month, come back for another year. Um, it's not really temporary. And fear not, if they do decide to settle down and uh, have a kid, whether through marriage or not, well... Then that kid is a uh, is a citizen, and they can collect benefits on their behalf. Because let me tell you, they ain't going to be earning enough uh, income threshold to uh, not be eligible on behalf of that right. kid. So uh, it's it's a trickle down effect. Like I said earlier, America is more than a spreadsheet on a corporate uh, um, Excel file. You know, there's you got to have a country, and you got to have a culture. You got to have security. Um, you got to have a civil society, and you know, you got to have a proper melting pot. And it's just, I I just feel like people like you have done work for so long and we really felt like we're making progress and, and our stuff was starting to get out. And it just, I don't know. It it just feels like nothing changes. Um, you know, the, the people are definitely with us. You, You, you see that in all the polling, um, no one wants to be taken advantage of, but I just, I just don't see where we get the money from. <laughs> it uh, all, it all comes yeah, back well, to that. We'll have to see if uh, some of these um, initiatives start to turn the tide a little bit. Um, I know that um, men and women of the Border Patrol and ICE uh, are certainly um, doing what they can to try to deal with this. And, um, maybe our leaders will follow. (laughs) Yep. Or it just gets so bad that there literally is no other choice. And I I hope it doesn't have to get past a certain threshold, although I thought we were already there, but look, keep us updated as, uh, these proposals and trial balloons are either shot down or implemented. I certainly respect your voice and I certainly need help. Uh, so I don't spontaneously, uh, combust here. Just like, um, (laughs) it's just so maddening. It really, it really is. Uh, we're, it's a one big David versus Goliath battle, but thanks for all you do, Jessica. And, uh, can't wait to have you back again. Thank you, Daniel, and you keep writing because uh, you're an important voice in this issue. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Jessica Vaughn of Center for Immigration Studies. We are way out of time. Till tomorrow, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 